This is 69 The Podcast. I'm Dave Haynes. 69 has been covering the digital signage industry since the dawn of man, first online and now as a podcast. The goal on here is to make listeners aware of interesting companies, smart people, and new technology developments, all of them meaningful in making digital signage projects happen. I try to help listeners understand sometimes complicated subjects and why they should care. The podcasts are free and I try to get a new one out weekly, but things happen now and then. The 69 Podcast has been gratefully sponsored and supported since the start by Jeremy Gavin and the fine folks at ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. ScreenFeed makes beautiful-looking, totally automated content for signage and digital out-of-home networks. Check them out at ScreenFeed.com. 69 has been around since 2006, and the publication and podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which provides customer engagement solutions for business. You can find them at Spectrio.com. I'm not sure why seeing all the product references lately to holograms makes me a little crazy. Apart from the simple fact that none of them really meet the definition, it's not like that's the one term marketers abuse. We've seen bezel-less displays that had bezels, micro-LED displays that aren't actually micro-LED, and on and on. I don't entirely know what really does meet the definition, so I thought I'd ask an expert. Daniel Smalley is an Associate Professor of Electrical Engineering at Brigham Young University in Utah and a genuine expert in the field. He's working, his CV says, to make 3D displays of science fiction a reality using waveguide-based modulators and optical tractor beam technologies. The short summary is that we're not there yet, and in this conversation, we get into why that is. With the biggest reason being bandwidth and the immense computing power needed to genuinely make the holograms of Star Wars and Star Trek actually happen and work. We also get into a discussion of the various products already on the market that have co-opted the hologram term and talk about the real-world practical applications for holograms. Daniel went to MIT and has his master's and a PhD, so he's approximately a billion times smarter than me. This talk gets technical in spots, but I tried valiantly to keep up. Daniel, thank you for joining me. Can you explain your role at BYU and uh, your, your interest in holograms? Certainly. I'm an associate professor of electrical engineering here at Brigham Young University. My research primarily has to do with advanced 3D displays, including holographic displays and volumetric displays. Okay. And when, when you say you're doing research, what does that mean? So it is our group's manifest destiny, as we see it, to recreate the displays of science fiction, specifically the Princess Leia projector from Star Wars and okay. the uh, holodeck from Star Trek. And so research in my mind is the, uh, the steps we take to get from where we are to, to those places. And, and, and where are we in, in those steps? Well, on the holography end, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, uh, the primary challenge now is that we can make little teeny tiny holographic video displays, but the bandwidth issues, the sheer computational power required to make big displays remains an obstacle. Uh, Some estimates by Pierre Blanche and others have suggested that we're going to colonize Mars before we have the capacity to, to easily feed a big holographic display with all the pixels it's hungry for. And on the and on the other side, on the Princess Leia projector side, uh, we're in a similar space, but with more hope. That is to say that we're, or we can make little teeny tiny Princess Leia projections, but I think we're not far away from getting um, moderate and maybe even large size uh, volumetric images here in the hmm. near future. 
Okay. Uh, so let's do a level set here. How do you define holograms and holographic visuals? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So there, there have been meetings of the minds where we've discussed and debated what these things mean. And I think the best way to think about the different display families are that there are three of them. So uh, a trifecta of, of holographic display. The first is a ray family of displays. The second is a wave family of displays. And the third is a point family of displays. Now the ray displays are the displays we're already familiar with. These are lenticular displays, stuff that you might see at Best Buy or on a magazine. Um, and these crisscross rays of light in space to form image points that we perceive, what we would call a real image point. A holographic display is a step up from that. It, instead of taking rays and intersecting them in, in the air, what it will do is it'll take its whole surface. So you'll be gazing at a screen and this whole surface is focusing light. It's curving away front of light in order to focus at a point and your eye perceives that focal point as, as a display point. Now, the magic of holography is you can take that surface that's shaping light and you can superimpose many such surfaces one on top of the other uh, and, and focus to multiple points and in this way build up an image in the air. And these images can be optically indistinguishable from real objects. So if you've, if you've seen a really good hologram in a museum, uh, you may be tempted to pick it up and look behind the glass to see if there you know, is a real object behind that. I mean, I've, even, even, a, even a seasoned holographer will occasionally mistake a hologram for a real object. Now, it comes with the price of the fact that there is glass, that you have to be looking through a screen of some, of some type. But the reason for this is because that wave shaping is being performed by a pattern of lines, a diffraction pattern. Uh, there's three ways of bending light, reflection, refraction, and diffraction. And in a hologram, it's diffraction is the, the active ingredient uh, creating this wave shape. So you have to be staring into those lines. You've got to be staring into that pattern if you hope to see something. Now, that said, imagery can be very deep. You know, looking into that hologram, that window, you can see imagery that comes out and tickles your nose or goes way back to infinity, back to the horizon. But you've always got to be watching it like you watch a television set. Even if what you'd prefer to do is watch it like a water fountain, right, where, it's, where the aperture... Is, is flat and then there's content shooting up out of it and then you can walk all around it and see it from every direction. Now, that type of display exists, but it's not a hologram. It's called a point display or a volumetric display. And unlike ray displays and wave displays that require screens, a point display can be screenless. In fact, maybe the best way to think about it is you take its screen and you grind it up into little pieces and you scatter them into the air and then each time you're looking at one of those little pieces, you're looking at an image point as well. And that's the technical definition of a point display is that every time you're looking at an image point, you're also looking at a group of atoms, a physical scatterer, which is to say, un unlike the ray case where you're looking at an intersection of photons or the hologram case where you're looking at the focusing of, of a wavefront, here we're looking at physical atoms scattering light. Uh, so in some ways, a volumetric display is a lot like a 3D printer that just destroys it, you know, the object it's creating every 30th of a second. And this in, endows it with some remarkable properties. So it, it can make 
uh, images that you can see from every angle. Uh, it can be relatively low bandwidth images if they're sparse. And they, they have what's called perfect accommodation, which means you can focus on them and your eye believes, even if you close one eye, you can focus really tightly on them and, and have really strong 3D cues. Now, the downside is that with these types of displays, it's hard to achieve the same level of realism that you get with a holographic display. And the reason for this, you can imagine if you had try a jar of fireflies and you're trying to make images out of these trained fireflies, that no matter what, you'd always have this problem where you can kind of see the fireflies in the back of your image at the same time, you can see the fireflies at the front of your image. And, and the result is that everything looks like a ghost or, mm. or a hole, right? If you want to backface cult. So this, this problem of self-occlusion is, is a big one. And it's, it's, one it's, it's part of the research we do is try to come, overcome these issues so that it can be a complete display dissolution. Hmm. So uh, in terms of array display, you're describing lenticular. So in the context of the this stuff that people listening to this might relate to. Uh, going back a, a number of years, there were what were called glasses-free 3D displays that were basically an LCD display with a lenticular lenticular layer over top of it. And you know, if you looked at it from different angles, it would sort of kind of seem like something was popping out from the screen. Is that basically what a ray display would be? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. that's exactly right. And then the wave display, uh, when you were describing that, I was immediately thinking of uh, that little company in Brooklyn called Looking Glass and the little Lucite blocks <laughs> that they have. So Looking Glass, and I don't want to misrepresent them or anything, but Looking Glass, I think, will admit that they are a array display technology. They are a not maybe not a lenticular well no it probably is a lenticular you'll notice i think i think this is true if you look at a looking glass display and you move left and right you will see the image change perspective yes but but if you move up and down you won't does that oh, okay. seem accurate and and that's an indication to the viewer that you're looking through cylindrical lenslets as opposed to an array of of, of circular mm -hmm. or spherical lenslets now the difference between them is if you, you know, if it's a, a lenslet array as opposed to a lenticular array, then you can move up and down and you'll also see 3D in that direction. Um, but you can dramatically reduce the information you need by just making a horizontal parallax only. They're just, just, just providing information for the horizontal. And your eyes, for the most part, you know, don't care. They're horizontally separated. You don't do a lot of bobbing up and down. So you get, you get, the most bang for your buck with, with just horizontal parallax. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've seen the looking glass stuff, not in person, although I think I might next week at a trade show. Uh, but I'm I'm kind of underwhelmed. It's like, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll shift to my right and I'll shift to my left. And it, it, it does seem like the image is, you know, subtly different, but it's, it's kind of one of these things where I'm going, well, that's nice, but so what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's true. There is there is also some fatalism about 3D displays, period, is that uh, when you get really good, you've just now duplicated reality, which is something we're very used to, and mm -hmm. it just becomes suddenly banal, right? It just suddenly looks like everything right. else. What would be an example of a wave? Are there real-world examples of a wave family display? Well, a holographic display. So... 
Uh, a wave display that you could go out and buy today? I don't know, but certainly many good static displays. There's certainly commercial companies in the, making an effort to create wave displays. Uh, two approaches that are gaining traction commercially, I think, are the holographic displays, which are a pattern of lines that diffract light to form a wave front, or a nanophotonic phased array. So uh, there, there is a caveat. There is a, there's a merging between the ray and the, the wave family at the moment when the rays become come from emitters that are very, very, very small, smaller than a wavelength of light. If that is, if if two things are true, if if those, those emitters are super small, number one, and number two, if all the emitters can see each other, that that is to say that they have some fixed phase relationship. With each other, the the technical term for this is coherence. They act as a team. If all those things are true, then you can start shaping wavefronts with what what would have been rays. So uh, essentially, if you have a big emitter, the ray comes out like a laser. But as your emitter gets smaller and smaller, the ray doesn't come out like a laser. It comes out more like a I don't even know how to describe it a spray, right? I mean, it, it diffracts out more and more and more until now you've got a spherical emitter and all those spherical emitters see each other and they interfere with each other in in ways that allow them to create arbitrary wavefronts. Any wavefront you want, you can create from a collection of spherical emitters, assuming they're small enough and assuming they're coherent with each other. So that's uh that's another approach that some people are taking. But the problem is in each one of these cases, you've you've got just an an intractable information problem. For example, any display could be made into a holographic display if its resolution was sufficiently high, if it could achieve holographic resolution, which is roughly a thousand pixels per millimeter, linear. So imagine taking all the pixels in your computer screen right now and squishing them into a one by one millimeter area and then refilling your computer screen at that density. So the, the, so that's a million times more pixels than what you're currently using to create a display the same size as what you're currently using. And so it's a so you're talking about if you wanted a meter size display, holographic display updated, you know, at, at a reasonable refresh rate, you're looking at in the neighborhood of hundreds of billions of pixels per second, maybe trillions of pixels per second uh, to create that display. So you've got challenges with computing power, with graphic processing, with bandwidth and everything else. Yeah, yeah, but primarily bandwidth. Um, the feeling I think broadly is that the optoelectronics are a, a you know a solvable problem. We might even be able to get pixel densities uh, where we want them, maybe. But that compute power that's a that remains a big deal. Now there there's shortcuts and workarounds. Uh, one particularly good workaround was by Serial uh, back in the day. What they would do is they would look at the viewer's eyeballs. And that they would only shoot light into the eyes. Light that was diffracting in other directions, they would ignore entirely. They wouldn't compute any of that. So they could dramatically reduce the amount of information they had to process. And they could increase the pixel size because they only needed just a little bit of diffraction, just enough to get into your, you know, to cover your pupil. And then they were done. Hmm. So that was it was a it was unfortunate that we haven't seen more from them. They were they started out with a a kind of mechanical version of the display that worked really well. And I think 
there was a struggle to make something that was solid state. Um, but that was, it was a pretty clever trick to reduce this bandwidth while still preserving the benefits of a wave front shaping holographic display and the realism that comes with it. So where do light field displays fall into all this? Are those wave or point? So this is the most controversial of all of this, you know, s- syntactic uh, f- infighting that we have right now, because there are, there are displays out there right now trying to commercialize light field displays, and they, they don't want anyone thinking that they're any, any less, that the, the consumers are getting anything, anything less than what they might consider to be a holographic display. And um, how, how they use the term and how we use the term is often very different. So when I say, so those of us who've gotten together and agreed on this, say a light field display is a ray display. That is to say, it's a, a pixelated display that's shooting rays in different directions. And it's those intersections that create uh, image points that our, our brain perceives. Uh, though I know there are displays out there or at least attempting uh, to create these coherent wavefronts. That is to say, these nanophotonic phased array, they're trying to create phased array wavefronts uh, potentially, and I can't be sure this is the case, but they do have wavefront shaping capabilities, and uh, that's that's beyond that's that's when you've crossed the bridge from a ray display to a wave display. Okay, huh. <laughs> one heck of a lot of this is over my head, but I'm I'm working on it. Are <laughs> are hologram and holographic interchangeable terms, or are they different things? So hologram, as, as we see it, and the way we decided to, to specif- specify this term, we, we define hologram as the surface with the lines on it that's actually diffracting the light. Okay, so, so if you go to a museum and you see a hologram, the glass plate that you look into, mm-hmm. the screen itself, that is the hologram. And the image you see, that's the holographic image. Okay. And then the process of creating that is holography. So we use holography to create holograms. And when we illuminate those holograms, they create holographic images. For over a decade, ScreenFeed has been the reliable choice for beautifully designed, licensed content such as news and weather. We handle over 27 million requests a day to deliver dynamic content to 200,000 screens across the globe. Now we bring you ScreenFeed Connect, a no-code solution that makes complex content projects easy. Projects that used to take our designers and developers weeks became a to-do we could complete before lunch. The easy-to-use browser-based tool leverages pre-built data connections and ready-made widgets to give you the power to design with data. Create team member profiles, schedules, tenant directories, progress boards, featured products, or anything that leverages your data. Discover how Connect empowers you to complete projects faster at screenfeed.com. It is a... Spinning LED light stick, uh, there are these individual sort of fan blade things and arrays of them that are being uh, called holograms. Are they holograms? No. Yeah, there's there's nothing diffracting. So if there's no diffraction, then it can't be a hologram. Now, it could be a volumetric image. Now, now, what's happening with most of these is they're a fan that spins in a single plane. However, if you just move that fan in and out, you just oscillate it in and out, or if you add a bunch of fan blades stacked on top of each other and spin them, 
Now you've created a volumetric display. Now, every time I look at one of those image points, I'm looking at a physical object in a volume and, and I'm, I'm getting a volumetric image. And, and it will have all of the benefits and all the deficiencies of that family of displays, of that point family, but okay. not a hologram. Right. And so when you say it's volumetric, it means you, you if you kind of went off to the side a little bit, you, 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 it, it's not just this single flat image. There's dimension to it or depth to it. Uh, so when I say volumetric, I mean that if you look at an image point, you're looking at a physical object, in this case, an LED. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course, it's just a flat LED screen if it's just spinning in a plane. Uh, you, you have to get, if, if you want to, if it wants to be qualified as a 3D display, then it needs to have, have pixels that, or voxels that exist off a plane. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just need to stack these or move one of them in and out. And then you could achieve this effect of, of uh, having a volumetric image. It's, it's yet more moving parts in these things, which would worry me even more. <laughs> That's right. If they weren't dangerous enough. Uh, is, a, is a transparent LCD a hologram? That is a good question. So that depends entirely on what you're displaying. So first of all, it, it could be a hologram if you're displaying a pattern of lines on your transparent hologram meant to diffract light so that far, far away, it's converging to a point for somebody to observe. Uh, that kind of display would not be very useful unless the pixels of this transparent LCD were very, very tiny. Now, in the case of some micro displays, for example, there are transparent uh, LCD micro displays for projectors, mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that could be a legitimate um, holographic display that it would actually create an image that we would appreciate as a holographic image. Now, uh, it would be those displays, those micro displays are micro. They're small, uh, maybe an inch, maybe one or two inches on a side. Uh, so they're not particularly well suited to humans, uh, but they would make great pet, you know, or insect displays. The 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 challenge now is to keep that same pixel, those teeny tiny pixels, those teeny tiny transparent LCD pixels, and then scale that size up while keeping the pixel small uh, to something that a human would appreciate, something in the 20 inch diameter or diagonal mm -hmm. range. So these shower stall dimension displays that are transparent LCDs that are just nicely lit, white screen captured visuals of people who are standing in one place and it's reflected on the transparent LED inside the shower stall like thing that's being described as a hologram. And I, and I, when I've written about it, I, I, I describe it as hologram ish, but it, yeah. it, it wouldn't qualify as a hologram, would it? It would not. Uh, but I will say this, I think that the trade-offs made there are actually pretty compelling. So when it comes to representing full-sized humans, we have to recognize that humans are kind of flat, uh, when, when, especially if you're looking at somebody standing on a stage. I mean, the six inches of depth from the front of their nose to the back of their head mm. is not much in the grand scheme of things, especially if you're looking at them from 50 feet away or 100 feet away, which is why, you know, the Tupac hologram, quote unquote, was so compelling mm -hmm. because... The, the further away you get from an object, the fewer 3D cues your eye is able to use to determine depth. 
So when you go to a play, they can paint the background, the mountains and the sun, because those things are so far away. The only 3D cues we get are the occlusion, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that one is in front of the other. But it could be totally flat, and those pictorial cues are all we need. As as objects get closer, we start adding things like motion parallax. When you're driving down the road, now you see these um, telephone poles moving with respect to each other. And then mm-hmm. as things get a little closer, now you get left-eye, right-eye disparity. And it's only when they get really close, within a few meters, does your eye start being able to focus on the near and far parts of that image. You get these accommodation effects. And then when they get within arm's reach, you can touch them, and now you have kinesthetic cues. So, so it's really when things are up close within arm's reach that you get this rich set of 3D cues. But if you push imagery back far enough, you can really get away with a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, things get much cheaper, much easier. And if the intention for these shower displays, as you call them, which I think is a pretty accurate d- description, if, if, if it's just to give the sense of presence of another human being in a room, you know, and, and if they're a few feet away, that might be a reasonable trade-off, especially if they're pushing all those resources into creating really high dynamic range, which they do, mm-hmm. good color saturation, and, uh, you know, high responsivity. That Those things are going to be much more compelling to a human viewer than, you know, that six inches of depth. Uh, right. We're kind of boring as far as 3D is concerned as humans. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen light field display is at uh, the SID trade show. And uh, I have seen the, the, the shower stall devices at, it, at different trade shows. And if I think of the two, the, the light field display is, you know, arguably closer to what people are thinking about as a science fiction hologram, but they're also six, six inches tall. And I, <laughs> I suspect that uh, most people, uh, Having to choose between the two and say, well, I like the, the life-size thing a lot more, even if it maybe isn't quite as sophisticated in certain respects. Absolutely. Does Absolutely. It, does it matter that uh, when I talked to the guy uh, at Proto, uh, David Nussbaum, who founded that company, it used to be called Portal, and that's the shower stall kind of displays, he, he's... He's upfront about it. He says, I, I know it's not a true hologram, but we have to call it something. And it, it's it's something that uh, consumers have their heads kind of sort of wrapped around. So that's why we use that. Is, is, is that a fair approach? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so. Like I say, we're all very uh, defeated at this point on this. <laughs> on this. So I think that uh, if you're trying to communicate with humans and, and it's already entered the vernacular in that way, I mean, how, how could we, unless we give them, I think it makes a fair point. If we haven't given them an alternative, then what else is, you know, a guy supposed to do? I'm curious, longer term, as this technology matures, what are the real world applications for this? Because, you know, if you're, if you're replicating Princess Leia in Star Wars, uh, that's a theme park attraction or a museum attraction or, or or something like that. But are, are there practical business uses for uh, holographic visuals? And I, I'm thinking of, I, I, I did see a demo from a company up in Newfoundland of all places called Avalon Holographics. And that was for energy exploration and, and shipping and so on to kind of show the depth of the ocean and all that. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. So is that kind of the more the real world use of this going forward? 
You know, that's a very good question. I think we have yet to find the killer app for holography, to be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, in any of the, the scenarios I've been approached with, it's, uh, it seems relatively straightforward to come up with something that's almost as good for much, much, much cheaper. So in, in the case of Slumberger, right, and uh, oil exploration, they're trying to understand these complicated 3D shapes in the form of oil fields and where to dig and this kind of spatial stuff. But, uh, you know, unless time is an important factor, and it's not in this case, you mm -hmm. can use, you know, a really big, nice 2D screen, move your mouse around and, and rotate around enough to get a really good sense of the 3D shape. Uh, people are really good at abstracting from 2D to 3D. Uh, and I'm thinking of, you know, radiologists in particular, just who just make this second nature. Um, however, if you were a doctor, uh, you know, a practitioner, you're a surgeon, and you're, you're trying to thread a catheter through the vasculature of the body, which can get very complicated in 3D, especially as you approach the heart and the brain, uh, it might be useful to have a really high fidelity 3D image uh, that you can see uh, as you're pushing this catheter to avoid, you know, abrading, uh, getting abrasions on the artery surface, causing embolism, that sort of thing. And the reason for that is because time is important. You're moving that catheter in time. You're being able to capture the spatial information at the same time you're moving is, 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 is sensitive. Time is a sensitive part of this process. And so maybe, maybe in that case, uh, let's see, is there another, is there another case where time is important? Maybe if you're doing, um, space, you know, aerospace surveillance, you're trying to keep, we've got all these extra satellites, thanks to Elon Musk and, uh, SpaceX, uh, to keep track of and the possibility of conjunction, which is the smashing together of satellites, mm -hmm. it gets greater and greater all the time. And that's a, that's more complicated than airplanes smashing into each other. Cause you got these curved orbits. And I'm sure there's all sorts of AI and computer analysis, but there's still a human loop, I think, in most in most cases. And, and they have to make a judgment call about whether these two complicated orbital paths are going to result in, a, in the smashing together of two objects. And if you have that rendered in 3D, you've got this moving spatial situation. I think you could understand what's happening much more viscerally than trying to abstract that from a 2D screen. Um, so, so I see those as to, you know, clear and present applications for a really good holographic system. Is, is there a lot of business investment in this or is much of the work uh, involving holography happening in environments such as yours, more, more on the academic side? Definitely more on the academic side. If you're talking about display, Holography, the, the real money in holography has never been in display. It's always been in things like security or photolithography or some of these other auxiliary. Um, so holography for uh, like I would have on my currency for. To, yeah, to that's exactly right. Counterfeiting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I, I don't imagine that's going to change. I, my feeling is that the displayed field is just fraught. I mean, it's just a terrible market to be in. Uh, I mean, it is. If you think about the last century, we really only had two dominant display technologies. For the, for the majority of this century, you had CRT displays, 
And then for the rest, you had LCDs. And during this time, you know, big companies were cannibalizing their own technologies. They, they were, new things were coming on, like miniature cathode ray tubes and um, all sorts of interesting OLEDs. Just think how long it took OLEDs to take off. Mm-hmm. Even though they were superior in so many ways, it was just you've got these multi-billion dollar foundries uh, and fabs. And uh, you're going to squeeze every last drop out of those displays. And, and then the margins are so small. And yeah, it's just a rough business to be in. So lots of, it's a last century and the early part of this one has just been littered with good technologies, good 3D technologies that just couldn't get a foothold. So in the 90s, we had two excellent 3D displays. We had the actuality display, which is the spinning paddle, uh, which was which is a very nice display. And then I mean, it had 100 million pixels, I think, per second. And then we had um, Sullivan's um, crystal display where he had these these stacked liquid crystals that he would project on uh, to form a volumetric image. All also excellent and solid state, for goodness sake. And, and that, that, both of those, about the 90s, both of those have, you know, couldn't quite find a foothold in the market. And, is it the uh, sort of thing that could be revived or is it? Oh, it has been revived. Okay. So there, there's a, there is a version of, of this type of display, which I call it in kind of an enclosed volumetric display where you have a diffuser moving up and down inside what I presume is an evacuated volume. Uh, and then you're projecting on that. And it looks beautiful. Like, I mean, it looks great. And they're, they're making a good try. They're making a good effort to get out there and solve some problems. My feeling with most people who are doing 3D display is that the targets they're looking at are in entertainment. People who are trying to uh, do VR or something like this, but they need some collaborative platform to to develop on that everybody Mm -hmm. can gather around. And, And that becomes this volumetric display or, you know, in the case of, you know, looking glass is also good for at this and then i think sony has another beautiful 3d display uh auto stereo for the for the same sort of thing targeting that same sort of market yeah i've seen that uh where do you think last question where, where do you think things will be at 10 years from now will, will, will there be commercial product out there or is this still going to be in the labs uh, I guess we have to dig down a little bit on that question what are we going to have well we're going to continue to have better and better displays for sure. And I think that they're going to, we're going to start making inroads on niche markets. I think we are seeing companies take this tack of uh, hitting premium markets first. Uh, so oil exploration will be in there. Entertainment will be in there. And hopefully we'll have a, a Tesla-like experience where well, they'll get a nice premium product with, with lots of really inspiring features they'll identify a killer app and then the trickle down will will provide the rest of us plebeians with a with a a 3d display here in the next little bit Uh, things are accelerating lots of technologies are converging i I think it's much more likely that you'll see a everyday volumetric display before you see an everyday holographic display just because the 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 uh Information problem, the bandwidth problem is not going away. Right. And, and, and I say I say volumetric display. I should also say that displays like Looking Glass, these uh, light field displays or, or better 
more correctly, maybe these ray displays are also going to get better and better and better. And, mm-hmm. and we'll have to make some decision about, are we willing to pay the premium to go from that excellent you know, ray display to uh, a much more expensive holographic display? Right. This is very helpful and very technical. I, I even understood some of it. But <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Favorite thing to talk about. I bet. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe you learned a thing or two. If you're new to 69, it's a podcast that's been around since 2016. You can click around the archive and find hundreds of conversations with smart industry people. If you're new to digital signage, you need to be reading 69 at 16-9.net. You'll find more than 8,000 posts by me and expert guest writers about this industry. 16.9 is not a press release republishing mill like a lot of the stuff out there. If something makes it on 16.9, that means it matters in some way to the business. Everything about 16.9 is free. Great sponsors make my work possible. And the key one here is ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. Check out all the curated and automated content available at ScreenFeed.com. 16.9, the blog and the podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which does customer engagement solutions, most of that digital signage for all kinds of businesses. You'll find them in the Tampa area and online at Spectrio. That's Spectrio.com. You'll find me working out of a sunny back room in my house located outside Halifax, Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Haynes.